This is Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I'm Jesse Felder. Object to the test! Since starting his newsletter roughly a decade ago, and then founding Real Vision a few years later, Grant Williams has established himself as one of the preeminent creators and curators of financial wisdom in the world. His keen yet conversational interviews with some of the most interesting thinkers in the financial field have inspired investors of every ilk all around the globe, and his monthly writings are widely considered invaluable. In this conversation, Grant discusses why and how he recently decided to shift the focus of his business in a more meaningful direction. He also shares what he's learned from his experiences in picking the brains of the greatest investors alive and how it shapes his own thinking today. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Grant Williams. Ever wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500? Because they're sheep. And sheep get slaughtered. Grant Williams, welcome to the show. Hi, mate. It's, uh, it's been a long time since you and I have uh, seen each other, that's for sure. Yeah, and I should probably say welcome back to the show because we did this a couple years ago, you know, and, and honestly, for people who are interested in, in learning, I think, more about you and your background, um, I was really glad to, to kind of dig into that in the first episode. So I'd encourage people to go back um, and, and, and uh, you know, listen to that. But since then, I mean, really over the past year, you've put out an amazing amount of incredible content on your podcast. I got to tell you, you're probably the only podcaster who regularly makes me feel envious of both <laughs> the quantity and quality of what you put out. So thank you. Well, that's very kind of you, mate. I'm, I'm flattered because uh, I love your work too. So that's, that's, that's great to hear. Thank you. Yeah. So I wanted to have you on the show to talk about um, this new project. I guess it's, it's not really a new project. It's, you've been doing um, things that make you go, hmm, for, for quite a long time. But I guess you've you pretty much just decided to take it to the next level. Um, but I guess, you know, first thing I'd be curious to know is what was it that made you want to leave Real Vision and, and kind of go out on your own in this way? Well, you know, I, I, I started on my own um, with, as you said, with things that make you go home. That was a decade ago I started on, on that project. Um, and, you know, Real Vision came along at about the same time that I took that business behind a paywall. And really that, that I reached a point with the writing that I was spending an awful lot of time writing it and you know, the other feedback was great but um you know time is, is such a precious commodity these days and I, and I i really didn't know if people would be willing to pay for it and i was i was very happy if they didn't think it was worth paying for it didn't really have any value to them and nobody wanted to pay for it i'd just stop doing it and use the time for something else so it, it just so happened that at that time uh raul remy damien and i kind of came up with this idea for real vision crazy idea that it was and so those kind of journeys set off in, in tandem and um and you know the real vision journey for me was five years and it was uh it was crazy i mean i i, I really enjoyed it. it was a lot of work a lot of travel but i got to meet some phenomenal people and have some really for me in many cases life-altering conversations and you know the the the, the conversations that that I like to have, I think you and I are very similar in this. I, I'm not so focused on on the trade ideas. I don't really want to know what people are thinking as much as as how they think and, and why they think a certain way. Because you know, I've I've always believed that 
if you can figure out the how and the why, then you can discern the what's yourself. And if you can come up with a framework that that takes advantage of the kind of successes and failures of other people, then you know you can apply those to everything. It's it's a it's a it's the old teacher man to fish um, parable, really. Um, and so you know, I, I put a series of those, um, I put a series of those interviews together, and and enjoyed every single one of them. And uh, I did those over the year in 2018, and yeah, through 2019, the 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 Real Vision platform just kind of moved in a, in a different direction to me. That's all. It was nothing, it was nothing sinister. There's no bad blood. Um, it just went down a road that that didn't really fit me so well. Um, you know, the the, the the kind of conversations that I want to have. Um, and it, and it just, for me, it just kind of came to a natural end, to be honest with you. I just, I just reached a point where I thought, you know what, this is, this is great. And I, and I wish you guys well, but I think it's time for me to step off now. And so that's what I did. And, and, you know, but for COVID last year, um, you know, the stuff I'm doing now, I, I, I probably would have done a year ago, but on the other, the other, the other side of that being locked down in COVID really gave me the impetus to start the podcast. I hadn't, really had any great thought about it and it, and it wasn't there's no kind of grand strategy behind it i was bored and <laughs> i wanted to talk to people and figure out what was going on and i and i just figured well if i'm going to have these conversations anyway with a, with a bunch of friends and peers around the world then why not let people listen in on them and, and it was really no more difficult than that and, and you, know, you were very kindly one of my first guests and, and i just enjoyed those conversations so much that it just felt like something that I should keep going on an ad hoc basis. And then again, you know, um, after doing that really for the best part of a year uh, from the series of humanars that I did and then, and then the podcast with, um, with Bill Fleckenstein on the end game and Steph Pomboy on the super terrific happy hour and Ben Hunt, the narrative game. Again, you know, I, I got to the point where as much as I was loving them and as much as everybody seemed to enjoy them, um, I just, I just felt that, uh it, it was time once again to put this behind a paywall and you know for me uh it, it felt like a, a bold decision i guess because uh you know you 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 recognize when you build a big audience and, those, and the podcast had a big audience that as soon as you put a paywall up you're going to lose a significant amount of that audience but i think you know i've, I've seen what happens i've seen um the kind of fallout from trying to build a big audience for the sake of having a big audience and for me personally i'd I'd much rather curate a smaller audience but an audience where there's a meaningful exchange of value and and uh, you know the, the the work that i do is valuable to people um and 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 for that value people are willing to pay and you know a nominal amount because yeah, there's so much free content out there, uh, and, and I I felt over the last couple of years I was kind of drowning in free content, and I, and I I was always very happy to pay for stuff that was valuable to me, and I realized that once I pay for something, I tend to pay more attention to it, I tend to invest more time in it, and it and it cuts down on this kind of deluge of free content that that I can give up valuable time on, um, and really kind of get lost. So. You know, I did this because I, I genuinely believe that, that that content shouldn't all be free. If people are taking their time and their energy, you know, just the way you do with this stuff, um, if it has value to an audience, then by definition, it shouldn't be free. And so, you know, I I, I don't think content creators should be afraid to charge for their work. I think 
if they charge for it and it's not good enough, then people won't subscribe. And I think once you have subscribers, as you know, with your, you know, your written work, that there's, there's a lot of pressure on you to come up with content that's worthy of people's time and money now. So, you know, that's kind of what I wanted to do. Um, I, I took that, I took that kind of leap of faith really. Um, and, and again, I, 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 the podcast I charged like 10 bucks a month, which is kind of the lowest number that it made sense economically to do and just kind of held my breath. And, and so far the response has, uh, has been overwhelming. You know, um, I've, I've put everything up at, at grant-williams.com, the new website. So everything's in the same place now, my presentations and writing and podcasts. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it, it's a scary moment when you do that because you just figure well, what if everybody disappears in a puff of smoke, but then again, it's a very rewarding thing when you find that, you know, people do actually value the work I put in, the time I put in, because every one of those podcasts, um, you know, not just me, but Bill, Steph, Ben, pour their heart and soul into to make them as good as we possibly can. And so that's kind of the journey I'm on. You know, there's, there's plenty more things I want to do, but COVID um, is kind of putting a, a, a crimp in those for the moment. Um, I, you know, I can't move freely around the world. I've just, I've just got off my first flight in almost a year, I guess. Um, and so until I can move backwards and forwards around the world with ease, uh, I'm kind of got one hand tied behind my back in what I want to do, but, um, that's fine for the time being, you know, I'm, I'm happy doing these podcasts and, and every one of the conversations has just been fantastically educational. And, uh, there's so much happening right now, as you know, Jesse, that this is just such a great time to, to be able to utilize a, a, a network that you've developed over the last decade and, and pick people's brains about some of the you know confusing times we live in. Absolutely, and I want to um, you know talk about some of those podcasts you've done because you know they're, they've just been phenomenal. And I want to talk a little bit more about the, the paywall decision also. But before we get to that, um, and you started to answer this, uh, you know, but but I'd like to hear a little bit more about it. You you, you recently interviewed. One of those phenomenal interviews that you did for Real Vision was with Tony Deaton, you know, and and, yeah. and that was very well received. Is one of my favorite uh, interviews that I've seen. Um, in your recent interview with him, he uses an apt metaphor for his investment practice. He likens himself to a bus driver with a very specific destination, and he only wants passengers or clients who are on board with that destination. Um, and he does a fabulous job with communicating precisely where he's going so that he knows people who, who are, you know, on board with him. Okay. We, we all know where we're going and, and what we're doing. Turning that lens, I guess, to your business. Um, what is your destination? Where are you taking those of us who are getting on the bus with you? You know, for, for me, Jesse, this is, it's about learning something. It's about learning something every day. And every, every one of those Real Vision interviews I did, and I must have done 500 of them over the years. Uh, I, I never left one of those without either having questions answered or, or questions asked that, that, that led me to go and do more work and try and understand things a bit better. And that's really what I'm trying to do is, is, is get people to think, get people to understand that there aren't really any simple answers to any of the questions that we've got right now. And, and boiling everything down to uh, a stock tip or a trade idea, I understand why people want that. I understand because that's that's easy and it's quick and it gives us something to focus on. Um, but I just figure there's there's plenty of people that will happily offer you a stock tip. 
I want to, as I said at the beginning of the show, I want to learn how these people think. And, you know, Tony Deaton is the perfect example of that. That that first interview I did with Tony was was three years ago, almost to the week, um, over in Switzerland. And, you know, I spent the day talking to Tony, and I, I came away just incredibly thoughtful about what we talked about and, and what I'd heard and, and how it had really changed the way I thought about a lot of things. And when we went through and edited the the content to, to put the ultimate piece out, you know, I just, I just couldn't, I mean, I physically couldn't get this thing down below two and a half hours, um, which, which told me a lot. And, and the world we live in saying to someone, Hey, here's a two and a half hour video about finance is a huge ask. And, and it, it's, it's a frightening thing to do because the average attention span is getting shorter, not longer. But I, I just had this feeling, having had the conversation, having edited it, that this was two and a half hours of, of profound knowledge being, being shared in a way that just you, you couldn't help but think very deeply about what you heard. And so that video went out. And um, again, you know, I, when it went out, I held my breath, waiting for the comments to come in. But to be honest, more so for Tony, I didn't want I didn't want Tony to be disappointed in, in the reaction in case people say, oh, this is too long and, you know, where's the trade ideas and all that kind of stuff, which, which I got used to seeing. Um, but the response was just overwhelmingly positive. And, and you know, I've, I could bore you to death with stories about the reaction to that, that piece of content that, that I've experienced all around the world over years, you know, being stopped in restaurants and airports and in the street and people who want to talk about that interview and Tony and, and his and his way of thinking, um, and, and it's just been it's just been incredible. So that journey for me is is what I I want to go on. So if if I'm the driver of that bus, I want to take people somewhere where they're going to hear interesting perspectives. It's going to challenge their assumptions. It's going to give them more things to think about. Um, and look, hopefully there are some answers along the way. But but I think today setting out to find answers in such an uncertain world is is not necessarily um, a, a journey that you're going to get a satisfactory outcome to because the answers are so hard to come by and 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 there are very few definitive ones because the the sands are shifting so dramatically between our feet seemingly every day so that's really what I'm trying to do is is expose people to um, different ways of thinking expose them to really smart, intelligent people, and then most importantly, let people make their own minds up. You know, I, I, all the conversations I have, uh, you know, the perfect example, we had back-to-back on the on the end game with Fleck. We had um, Lacey Hunt and Russell Napier, uh, both two of the most brilliant financial minds you could ever wish to meet, and both diametrically opposed in what they think is going to happen next. You know, Lacey's been a deflationist for 40 years, and he's been right for 40 years. And he, he maintains that that is our future. You know, Russell's been right there alongside him for the last two decades. He's now completely switched to the opposite camp. And we, we didn't get an answer in those podcasts as to whether deflation or inflation is in our future. But what we got for everybody listening was a wealth of information about how to think about it, about what to look for. And then, you know, it comes down to all of us making the decisions that we think are right for our portfolios um, using the knowledge we have. So the more knowledge you can accumulate, the more points of view you can get from super smart people who, who you can trust the rigor of their, of their process, 
the easier it becomes for you to make a decision that, that you can be comfortable with personally. And, and it's not a point of saying, I think Lacey's right or I think Russell's right. It's about listening to the information you hear, and no matter who it's presented by, as long as you know that there's a rigor behind that, that presentation, and then doing the work yourself. You know, you can't abdicate that work. Uh, asking people for portfolio allocations is is an impossible ask because people don't know your circumstances. They don't know the way you see the world. They don't know whether an inflationary future or deflationary future is going to hurt you. And so that's really, I mean, it's a long-winded answer, but that's really what I'm trying to do is, is help people get the knowledge they need to be able to make their own decisions instead of outsourcing those decisions to, to everybody else. Well, you know, I absolutely validate, um, you know, the the feeling behind that. I, 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 it's exactly what I try and do. I'm far more curious about the framework people use to analyze investments and asset classes and, you know, uh, economic scenarios rather than their conclusions right. that they come to from that, that framework. So, um, you know, speaking of that, and, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, Tony, again, I guess, you know, how influential to me listening to that podcast it was it was fascinating to me hear him discuss the difference between an investment business and an investment practice uh i guess how influential was he on your process and thinking about how you wanted to evolve the the business um that you are are developing today well he, he's been a tremendous influence i mean i um a year ago more than a year ago i actually went to Switzerland when we could travel around the world. Um, and I went and stayed with Tony for a few days and, and I invited three other dear friends of mine from, from different parts of the world, different walks of life, um, who, who know me as a person, who know my motivations, who know what drives me. Um, and I got them all to come and spend a couple of days and, and pick apart what I wanted to do and tell me you know, why it wouldn't work. Tell me, why, why will this not work? And, and we spent two days um, discussing this stuff. And subsequent to that, you know, I, spent, I spent some time. Um, I'm going to give away a secret here, but it was the most thinly disguised secret, I think, in, in any of my written work over the last 10 years. But I wrote a piece um, in September last year uh, called Two Men in a Boat. And um, uh, actually, the, the, the first piece of that is actually on my website. You can just download it for free and read it. And I talked about a week I'd spent sailing with uh, someone called the captain. Um, and look, it was a very thinly disguised Tony. It was Tony and I spending a week on a boat. And I don't think I fooled anybody, and I wasn't really trying to, but I was trying to protect Tony more than anything else. But he, he said he didn't mind if I told people. But, but uh, you know, that's an interesting thing for people to read because it, 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 it gives you a sense of what it's like to just sit and talk about the world with someone who just has a different perspective to you. And, and that's the thing about Tony, the, 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 what you highlighted there from our conversation about the difference between an investment business and investment practice. It's such a simple distinction, um, but I hadn't spent five seconds thinking about it until Tony talked about that. And it's, it's things like that. Um, and for, for anyone that hasn't listened to that podcast, you know, Tony talks about uh, a business being something where y- you are there to, to fill the needs of your customers whatever your customers want, you know, that's what you provide them. That's, that's a business. Whereas a practice, like a medical practice, you're there to do what's best for your customers. You know, a doctor at a medical practice will prescribe what he thinks is best for you, not what you come in and say you want. You might want 
a bunch of sleeping pills, but he's not going to give them to you unless he thinks it's in your best interest. And so something so simple as that distinction between a business and a practice, you know, sets you off thinking about all kinds of different things, about things bigger than finance, about about what's important in life and, and how to think about um, important decisions you have to make. And, and so really, Jesse, it's, it's that kind of stuff that there there are people who just have a way with that kind of thinking it's very simple but it's very profound and and i i I just i relish every second i get to spend not just with tony but other people i've met that that think similarly just you know slightly differently to the norm and have just a wonderful way of illustrating their thoughts through through metaphor and and um and imagery which which makes the point hit home that much harder and you know so i can i guess you know, just through through talking through this, it's it's pretty clear to see why, you know, the paywall um, makes more sense. Uh, you know, I guess with just free content, you know, the temptation is to try and please uh, a much wider audience. You know, give people what they want. You know, rather than than uh, what you you know th- would necessarily prescribe for them. Uh, you know, also. If you're, you know, thinking about, I guess the the traditional model for podcasting is is uh, through advertising. So you know, supporting it through advertising, and see a lot of you know podcasts that that uh, end up going that route. But then you're you know forced to um, you know try and meet the needs of your advertisers as well. Uh, so I guess what I'm most curious about what was the de- the decision to put I guess everything behind the paywall, or is is that really the model? Um, I, I wish I could tell you there was some great strategy that i'd whiteboarded for hours on end and come up with this you know cunning plan to dominate the world but there's there's it's nothing of the sort i'm afraid you know the podcast started out as i said because i was bored under lockdown um it became just a fascinating project and and i learned so much from it that i wanted to keep doing it and then it started taking up a lot of time because there were so many great conversations to have and and you know the the thought behind putting it behind the podcast i had as the as the podcast started appearing on you know, top 10 charts in the iTunes store and this, that, and the other. Um, my first real alert that that was happening was when people started to reach out saying they wanted to either advertise on the show or they wanted to suggest a guest for the show. And what, what I found that was common in, in, in all those requests as they came through was they all started off with either we've got A, the perfect guest for your show or B, the perfect product for your audience. Um, and then they proceeded to pitch a product that had nothing to do with my audience whatsoever or a guest that clearly didn't fit in any of the conversations, uh, any of the kind of uh, streams that I was doing with, with Bill, Steph, and Ben. Um, and so I realized that, that this, this industry, this podcasting industry in many ways, is it's just a platform for people to build an audience. And, and when you do that, you... I think you lose the soul and the integrity of certainly what I set out to do. And, and I realized that if I'm getting 85,000 downloads of, of one of these conversations over, over a couple of months, I know that not all 85,000 of those people are my audience. Some of them have come to it. Some of them have started listening to it and dipped in and dipped out or whatever it may be. And that's fine. I don't expect that. But I think inside that, that 85,000 there's maybe three or 4,000 or or 2,000 people for whom this content actually really resonates and is and is important and it helps them out 
and and it's it's valuable to them and i would i would much rather spend the time trying to create content that that's meaningful in people's lives and moves the needle for them whether it be from an investment perspective or in the case of tony's we've just been talking about moves the needle in a philosophical perspective for people and helps them think about things differently you know, that to me is way more important creating meaningful content for people than building a big audience so that you know i'll get in an itunes chart here or I'll attract a sponsor there or you know i i just I, i'm not it, it, that sort of stuff doesn't drive me i mean I've, I've i was telling someone the other day i've been asked three times over the last few years how many twitter followers i have and i had no idea on any occasion and the last time i was asked a few months ago i was i took a guess based on the last time i'd been wrong and i was wrong by thirty thousand followers i just i just you know this stuff it it's it's wonderful and, and it's great to to be able to reach people and, and share ideas and more importantly get feedback and, and get access to other people's ideas but it doesn't it doesn't motivate me it doesn't drive me to try and you know, get to a milestone of followers or a milestone of listeners because I, I, I want it to be meaningful to people. Absolutely. And I want to try and get to some of these, you know, discuss some of these frameworks that you've analyzed, um, you know, for thinking about different asset classes over the past year. Um, uh, you know, this one is is definitely a hot button one and I, I generally try and avoid it, but I really did enjoy oh, the Bitcoin. Oh, I know where you're going. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I thought it was fantastic. And and to me, um, what I really appreciated was to uh, being able to hear two totally different but well-reasoned arguments on, on both sides and done in a respectful manner, which is something you don't typically see uh, in, the, in the cryptocurrency yeah. debate, uh, if there really is a debate um, in most circles. Uh, I guess after hearing both Nick and Mike's views, um, you, were you swayed in one direction or the other? Was uh, I guess what a lot of people, you know, were asking me to ask you on Twitter, which is, uh, what would it take for you to, I guess, uh, become less skeptical towards Bitcoin cryptocurrency in general? Well, that that um, that debate, I didn't, I didn't really want to dip my toes in the crypto space for, for, for several reasons. Um, and it's, you know, it's funny being so readily identified with the precious metals market as I've become over the last years, just because of a lot of the presentations I've done, which are very kind of pro precious metals. Um, you know, I, I absolutely understand the case for Bitcoin. I, I, I totally get it. And, and I, and I, I, I think it makes all the sense in the world. Um, but, I, you know, I do have questions. There are there are holes in it that I that I worry about, and, and we addressed some of those in that in that um, in that discussion. But I just I just feel you know when you look at someone like Nick Carter, who was just I mean he's just a brilliant young man. I mean a, a great thinker, a great debater, just a really really bright guy. And there are so many in that space similar to Nick that that are incredibly smart, incredibly sound reasoning. And I just, I just don't see where I add value in in the Bitcoin discussion because I haven't done the work they've done in it. You know, it, it's not something that's that's preoccupied me in a way it has a lot of these guys. So I've I've set out from that. I mean, it kind of rose organically on Twitter that debate, and people kind of asked if I would moderate it, and I was very happy to do so. Look, Mike Green's a great friend of mine, and and I mean, you know, in possession of just a towering intellect. 
and, and fair play to Nick, not only for having the guts to debate him, but actually standing his ground and giving every bit as good as he got in that debate. I thought it, I thought it was fascinating on both sides. Um, I didn't, I didn't get my fears allayed. I thought Nick did an absolutely brilliant job of arguing his case. I really, really did. Um, it, it, it didn't answer the, the kind of fears I have, but then in many ways I didn't really expect it to because the, the fears I have are around, um, you know, what, what could be done from a regulatory standpoint. What they're, they're kind of extreme scenarios that you can't really map out and game theory for. They're either going to happen or they're not. And, you know, Tony, when, when, when I got to talking to Tony Dean a, f- a couple of weeks later, and the subject of Bitcoin came up and, um, you know, Tony, again, you know, argued it very simply. He said, look, it's just not suitable for me. You know, I, I hope all these people get rich. It's it's fantastic. But I don't care if it goes to $7 million a coin. It's just not a suitable investment for me. And once again, you know, that really was was such a simple way of of putting one's case forward um, for cryptocurrency because there's this there's this theory that that it's all about the price and if the price goes up therefore it's a great investment therefore it's all the things that that the, the bulls say it is and when we have these sharp drawdowns and the 20 percent falls like we saw a couple of weeks ago it's it's going to zero and it's you know this this is always going to happen it's too volatile uh, and price has become the, the the single arbiter of whether you're right and wrong on it and, and you know, I, I do fear that that is the kind of mentality that you do see in bubbles. Um, like I said, I understand the bull case for Bitcoin. I think it has a future as long as it's allowed to have a future, a legal future within certain frameworks. Um, but you know, my my big fear, and I, I think I put it forward in that in that debate, is I, I just I struggle to see any. Uh, currency issuing body allowing competition when push comes to shove when that competition becomes any kind of threat i don't see anybody allowing it to continue and and you know that's my big threat i I get the arguments about electricity grids and shutting down access on the internet and all that stuff but it's way above my technological pay grade but the simple historical aspect um and you know get Give me the. I think Meyer um, Amschel Rothschild said, "Give me the power over a nation's currency, and I, and I don't care who controls the armies or something." I'm bastardizing a couple of quotes there, but but this ability to to create and issue currency is the true sovereign power, and people that have power tend not to give it up easily, and when they see threats that they can squash, they tend to do that. So, you know, I, I watch it with fascination. Um, it's. I think the argument is that it's a store of value currently when it's so volatile, um, I, I don't think hold water. But as a speculative asset, I've not seen anything like it in my career. And so for the for the people who are in there speculating with it, uh, you know, I, I, uh, good luck to you. I, I hope this thing goes to 100,000 and I hope you all make money and get out. I mean, or, or, or hodl it if that's what you're going to do. But I, it's just, as Tony said, it's not something – that I feel is is suitable for me simply because of the reservations I have about it. Well, I, I love that, you know, Tony was comfortable saying that. I think uh, one of the things that's most frustrating to me uh, in a lot of these um, debates, if we can call them that, is that there isn't any room for 
um, you know, that's not suitable for me. Yeah. Uh, and that was one thing that I appreciated about the episode, uh, the Bitcoin debate that you had, is it really did transcend the, um, the, the tribalism, for lack of a better word, that, you know, seems to be just permeating markets today. Either you own Bitcoin, or you're an idiot, you're, right. a passive in- <laughs> you're a passive investor, or you're some kind of charlatan, or you're either launching a SPAC or you're a perma bear, right? There's right. just, there's no room for diversity of opinion or methodology. Um, to me, are you as, I guess, are you as tired of all this as, as I am? Oh, Jesse, I, I can't tell you. I, I just, there's, there's nothing that, that cuts me to my core deeper than incivility. You know, I, it just, I, I just don't think there's any need for it. And, um, you know, the, the whole idea of a civilized debate, which, you know, Mike and Nick delivered with aplomb, I have to say, it was, it was incredibly civilized. And you, you just get so much more out of a conversation when the two sides are listening to each other, you know, instead of trying to talk over each other and, and shout down the other person's point of view. And, and I just, you know, the one thing about Twitter, and again, it's, a, it's another problem you get, the bigger your audience becomes, um, the, the the wider apart the fringes of it are by definition, and so you you just too tend to generate this this kind of toxic uh, interaction with people, and, and being able to hide behind social media doesn't help. Um, and I just think it's a great shame, and I, I think it's it's a shame, and it's a, it's a great waste of time when when you, you have people with an opposing view to you, uh, you know, listen to them, and look, fine if you think they're an idiot after you've heard them out. That's fine. But saying someone's an idiot because they don't own the asset you own or they don't think the same way you think about something is, is just so short-sighted to me. Um, and I just, I just don't see the need for it. And, and it, 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 you know, it, I hate seeing some of the abuse leveled at people who are putting themselves out there with, with thoughts to, to challenge the thinking around something. You know, I, I, and I, I, there are people I know very very well who i've watched weigh into debates and particularly the crypto debate um and i know what motivates these people i know their hearts i know that they're trying to have questions answered they're trying to suggest possible problems with it to to stress test it and get feedback and and they just get buried under abuse and and the shame is what you do is you just you take a whole bunch of people who are incredibly smart and can add an awful lot to the debate on, on either side and like me they just say you know i'm just going to check out of this because there are other things to focus on where I, I don't need to get all the abuse i can i can get answers privately i don't need to share my thoughts publicly i'll just go and ask the people that i know in the space because i can have a reasonable conversation with them but there's no point doing it publicly and, that, and letting other people um you know get the benefit of these conversations which i just think is such a shame yeah, I mean it, it's it's terribly ironic when you have somebody like Ray Dalio, who's essentially you know uh, I guess completely associated himself with the idea of diversity of opinion, you know, cultivating a diversity of opinion before you form any kind of conclusions. And his skepticism towards Bitcoin is you know people react to it with well you know have fun staying poor, Ray. Yeah, yeah, okay, <laughs> you know, like right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have have fun staying obscenely wealthy, right? <laughs> right. It's, uh, it's unbelievable, uh, and it's a testament to, I guess, the sentiment. Um, you know, the the extreme confidence, as our mutual friend Peter Atwater would yeah. term it, uh, in 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 a lot of these things. But let's let's change gears a little bit. Um, you know, I guess part of the you know the 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 
Bitcoin thesis that you and I can probably both agree with is the risk of um, inflation going forward and the debasement of the currency and, and these types of things. Um, you and Flack put together the Endgame series, which was just outstanding. I mean, James Aiken, Felix Zulov, Paul Singer, just to name a few. What a wealth of knowledge and experience you brought together to address this single topic of how does this, you know, money printing and, and you know, I guess come to an end. Uh, what I would like to know, and I think a lot of other people, is what what did you really take away from those discussions? Is there was there kind of a single theme that emerged from 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 all those that you had that helped inform you know the way you're looking at markets going forward? Yeah, you know, I, I I've thought about this a lot, and I, and I think the the big thing that I've taken away from this is nobody knows, and I think that's that's such an important takeaway. You know, um, it was funny. Uh, Mike Mike Green was, I think, our first or second guest on the on the series, and the, his answer to the first question I asked him, which was really the first question in the series proper, was, "Of course, there isn't an end game," and he was absolutely right. There isn't an end game. Right? This isn't about the end of anything, but it is about the transition from from now to then to whatever comes next so that's really what we've been trying to figure out um and as i said you know when you have lacy one week um laying out an incredibly compelling case for deflation and then russell napier the next week laying out an equally uh, credible um explanation for why inflation is the problem we're facing and then you know paul singer inflationary camp dave rosenberg uh did a fantastic uh, interview with steph and i a couple of weeks ago um, talking how no, we're, we're not we're not getting de- inflation yet. It's going we're going to continue with deflation, and you realize that these are the, some of the smartest people in financial markets, and they're split right down the middle, and they argue their cases incredibly lucidly, and they've all you know been right for a long time. And, and, and what I take away from that is that this this idea of inflation or deflation is is probably the most important thing to understand now and, and the most important thing to to have a viewpoint on and the most important thing to have an, a solid understanding of what it does to your portfolio because um you know i've talked about this before it, it, we've had f- the best part of 40 years of deflation and portfolios that are structured to profit from deflation will not do very well if we do get an inflationary environment and so when you look at where risk assets are, particularly the bond market and, and lately where the equity markets are, you really have to start asking yourself the question that if what we are seeing are the green shoots of inflation, if the commodities complex bottoming and starting to show some real signs of life after a, a long while is indicative that we're moving to that point where expectations are going to increase and and really that's all it needs to get inflation starting to move, then you have to sit down and you have to think about the potential damage that could do to your portfolio as it's structured now. Um, and and so doing that and realizing that this is the big question you need to you need to try and answer or at least have a plan for, then these conversations with, with all these incredible thinkers on on the end game are worth their weight in gold, no matter what their opinion is it doesn't matter if if it's lacy or it doesn't matter if it's russell and they're on completely opposite sides of the debate the information value to you as someone with a portfolio is extraordinarily high because here you've got guys 
helping you think through the things to look for in Lacey's case as to as to what he would look for before he jumped off the deflation train, which is basically the Fed uh, liabilities, so Fed assets, sorry, becoming legal tender. Um, and a day after we had that conversation with him, there was a, a story on Bloomberg that that, that was being mulled over. Um, and Russell saying, you know, here's what you need to look out for. This is what I'm looking at because I think we're going to get to four, five, six percent inflation um, a lot quicker than people think. Now, to have those guys and, and throw Paul Singer in and throw James Aitken in and throw Felix Zulaf in and Jim Grant and all these incredible brains and just listen to them and and then it, it's okay to not know, but you're, you, A, you're going to probably find – an argument over time and over a series of people become more compelling to you. Um, and that's great. That's what this is all about. And then sitting down thinking, okay, well, if, if we are at a turning point and if, if, if a secular inflationary trend is, if not going to get underway, is already kind of starting to smolder, what do I need to do to protect myself? And I think at this point in, in the market, uh, that's the question you need to ask. It, we've, we've had this period where uh, it's, it's how do I make money? What do I ride? What do I, what do I back in order to make more money? But I think you're getting to a point now with the extreme valuations we see right across the spectrum of the, the question now being not, okay, where do I invest next to make money? But how do I protect myself from a potential turn in the markets, from a potential turn in inflation? How do I, how do I safeguard myself and, and, and give myself the best chance of not throwing away the, the, the gains that have been bestowed upon me by a very benevolent set of central bankers. Um, and and if, you, if you feel after doing all that work and listening to all these people and, and thinking about it for yourself that, you know what, we've still got a tailwind for a couple more years, that's great. At least you can do it then comfortable that you've listened to the best minds in the world. And after listening to them and hearing things that could potentially cause you sleepless nights if you're comfortable enough to press on that's great you can do it with confidence and 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 a sense that at least i've done the work i haven't just kind of stayed around the dance floor near the band too long and not at least figured out where the fire exits were right and i think the the corollary to that to the inflation deflation debate is i think everyone probably needs to try and answer for themselves what is priced into the markets um, right? Yeah. Is are markets priced for deflation, or are they priced for inflation? And and you know, to me, it's it's obvious. There's you know, they're they're leaning towards deflation right now. So, um, you know, I, I think that's something else. Uh, you know, was there, um, you know, in your reading of those those discussions with all those brilliant minds, um, was there kind of a anything close to consensus on on what markets seem to be pricing in today? Well, I, I mean, a, a, an extraordinarily good outcome on just about every uh, every vector, frankly, is what's been priced in here. I mean, we are we are priced just about for perfection, unless unless you look at um, you know some of the commodities complex, some of uh, some of the small caps, some of the value stocks. You know, value is is a is a four letter word these days, um, which is great, as you and I know. Uh, that offers potentially a fantastic opportunity. And, and if we do see that turn, value stocks, I suspect, will perform very well. But, um, but certainly the, the, the bond market, if there's even a whiff of inflation, is 
a remarkably dangerous place to be. And and I saw a I saw a stat last week that that was mind boggling to me that the ECB had bought eighty five percent of of issuance in the last year by the by the European sovereigns and a hundred percent effectively of the southern European uh, sovereign debt. Now, knowing that and believing it can continue for any period of time or even get bigger should the market come under pressure is a is a remarkably risky bet to take. Let's just put it that way. And I, and I think there are plenty of signs like that. There are plenty of uh, data points you can look at. In fact, uh, Meb Faber put out a great set of charts on um, on Twitter recently. Um, if you look for Meb Faber, you'll see it put out a whole bunch of kind of charts to show just how big this bubble is. And no matter whether you're looking at, at sentiment or you know, CAPE ratios or SPAC issuance, there were probably 25 charts there, each of which on its own basis would give you pause for thought. But when you look at them together, um, you can't help but, but think back to, to 2000 and the, and the kind of speculative mania we saw at the, at the very end of that, of that um, dot-com boom. And if you've been through that, you recognize what we're seeing now. And, and look, could, could it carry on? Yeah, of course it could carry on. Um, but it becomes a, a case of handicapping. Is, is, it, is, it, is the last 10% as easy to capture as, as the sort of 50th and 60th percentile of this move? Do you want that last 10% or would you rather leave that for someone else knowing that that last 10%, as we've seen with a lot of these kind of um, Wall Street bets, Reddit stocks like GameStop, you know, they, they go up and up and up until they fall 85% in, in a couple of days. And that's the risk I think you're taking in a lot of these things now is, is, is this sudden reversal that, that traps an awful lot of people. Well, and that's, you know, I guess when I was talking about, you know, what's priced the markets, uh, what it's the market uh, priced in, it's, you know, where are the risks, right? Um, you know, the, I think to me, the way I, I look at the markets and I look at a lot of these, you know, growth stocks and equity valuations and things is, is they are assuming, you know, they're making a lot of assumptions, um, you know, that low interest rates, low inflation will stay around for indefinitely. Um, and, and the risk, even if, you know, it's not possible to get, um, you know, inflation, you know, like we saw in the 1970s, um, how much do interest rates or inflation need to rise in order to impact equity valuations? That's something, you know, people ought to consider because, you know, they, they might not need to, to, to rise very much at all in order to make, uh, you know, have a major impact on a lot of these valuations that are, you know, extremes we've, we've really never seen before in, in the stock market. So um, in terms of the, the inflation debate, um, you know, that, you mentioned this is something everybody kind of needs to come to their own um, understanding about. Uh, is there uh, is there one way that that you're leaning? Um, I, I know you res- have respect for a great deal of respect for for you know both sides of the argument, but uh, you know is, is there one way or the other that that uh, that that you are personally leaning? Yeah, I I, I... I, I'm starting to lean towards the inflationary side of things. Um, I don't think it's coming imminently. I mean, Russell Russell thinks it's it's here and it's going to it's going to get significantly higher a lot faster than people think. I, I I I'm a little bit more sanguine about it than that. But I think at this point, if you just, if you just if you just think about it, right? If you think about 
where bond markets are, 5,000-year highs. If you think about where um, equity markets are, you know, I mean, all-time highs in many, many cases. And where you think where valuations are, um, incredibly stretched right across the board. If, if the deflationary environment persists, how much further can the bond market go? Realistically, you're going to have to, if you want to generate any real returns, you're going to have to go further and further out on the speculative curve to, to make any real juice from here. Um, and likewise, in equities, uh, the, the crowding into the market leaders, which again, we saw in 2000 at the very end there, concerns me a great deal. I think inflation is is going to be our future. Uh, I think more stimulus, uh, massive fiscal spending, deficit spending is going to be in our future. And and what worries me is that is that that stuff finally starts to show in the currencies because the markets are essentially kind of rigged for the time being. Um, although there's an awful lot of water building up behind that dam, um, and it's and it turns out to be the currencies that people start to lose faith in, which can have a very obviously inflationary outcome. And and I think Bitcoin is a little bit of that. I I, I think. There's a lot of speculation in there, but there, I think there's a, definitely a little bit of that. I think gold and silver being where they are is is a little bit of that, and I and I, and I, I feel like we could get um, uh, you know an acceleration in, in currency destruction, which uh, which will kind of bring about this inflationary cycle. So for me, after doing all the thinking um, and loath as I am to go against Lacey Hunt, I think ultimately uh, I think Russell's view of the future is is closer aligned to mine i just think it's a case of timing and and i think it'll happen maybe later 2021 rather than earlier 2021 the way russell predicts well there's so many to me i mean i i love the uh the sentiment signals you know in terms of these yeah. things right you look back at you know 1981 was it the death of equities you know yeah. covered yeah. And, and, you know, we have the almost exact opposite, which is the death of inflation. You know, recently you have the, the Economist and Business Week and, you know, these, um, I guess it's Bloomberg now, uh, but running those types of headlines. You know, we see it with the oil price, too. In 2008, um, you know, uh, Dylan Grice was, wrote about this recently. I just tweeted it today. Uh, you know, in 2008, everyone was talking about, um, you know, peak oil supply. And yep. now everyone's talking about, we've already passed peak oil demand yeah. and you know it's interesting how these just these things rhyme and and to me they're signposts that are that are pointing to yeah the risk is uh towards inflation making a comeback towards you know oil shortages and and these types of things um as far-fetched as that might sound um you know at least the sentiment signals seem to be pointing in that direction to me but these these things always sound absurd at, at, at these kind of points right and, and i think Look, oil. For example, oil's gone from minus forty dollars to sixty. I mean, oil's moved a hundred bucks, right? And I mean, the minus forty was a moment in time, but it, it, but it's, it's a significant move. And actually, talking of Dylan, um, you know, another great thinker, and Dylan put a piece out the other day and a speech from um, Janet Yellen where she said, you know, we we have all the tools to to keep inflation under control. And Dylan, again, very very simple, but. He tweeted it out and he said, we, we know you have the tools. What we don't know is if you have the stomach to use them. And that's the question. It's not a question of do they have the tools. Of course it isn't. We know they have the tools because Volker showed us that he had the tools to do it. But there is absolutely no chance that 
with the financial system so dependent upon a friendly uh, Federal Reserve that the Fed can do what they would need to do if inflation gets out of control because the whole thing falls over. So it, it's, it's going to be at some point um, a battle that requires some kind of atomic weapon to be dropped by the Fed. And maybe it isn't the Fed, maybe it's government, but, but somewhere along the line, something I suspect is going to have to be done that is going to catch market participants uh, completely by surprise. Right. And, it, you know, to me, it, uh, it's, a, it's a, a f- I guess the way I've framed it is at some point, the Fed is going to have to make a choice between the devil and the deep blue sea. And the devil is raising interest rates to fight inflation and creating another uh, you know, asset price bust or fighting inflation effectively by raising interest rates or, like you mentioned, maybe raising taxes enough to, to fight inflation. Um, or I, I'm sorry, not doing that and trying to preserve the uh, asset prices and allowing inflation to to develop into hyperinflation, which is something that you know William White has has yeah. uh, been warning about for a couple of years now. I, one of the things that I think you know you're you're known um, for the, for your podcasts and and rightfully so they're they're wonderful, but I think your writing is perhaps really underappreciated. I mean, I, I've been reading it now for, for a couple of years and uh, Two Men in a Boat you mentioned was terrific. Um, you were also an early skeptic of WeWork. You were one of the first people that I, I read that was, uh, you know, criticizing the business model, you know, before they came, you know, tried to come public and the whole thing kind of <laughs> came crashing down. Um, what are some of the themes that you're looking at, uh, at, at potentially writing about um, this year? Well, this, uh, I just I just wrote a piece, my first piece of the year. Um, I wrote about uh, about warfare, <laughs> ironically enough. Um, you know, somebody asked me at the beginning, actually, of two thousand twenty, what my what my big fear for twenty twenty was, and I, and I said at the time that it was social unrest was a thing that I was worried about for twenty twenty, and and that kind of escalated through the year, and and you know has reached. I don't think it's plateaued yet. I don't think we've seen the end of that, unfortunately. But alongside social unrest domestically, um, there are all kinds of changes happening on, on battlefields around the world. And I, I wrote about the war in Nagorno-Karabakh, which is a, a disputed territory between Armenia and Azerbaijan. And the story my, my great friend Steve Diggle kind of clued me into late last year, and I've been kind of researching it and, and looking at it and trying to understand it for the, for the last couple of months. And, you know, it's a fascinating story. Um, when you look at the the two armies, you know, the Armenian army had basically battered the Azerbaijanis for years. Um, and this is, this has been an ongoing conflict over this land. They've had a ceasefire in place since the mid-90s, but there's, there are flare-ups on this border just about every year. And um, obviously the Azerbaijanis have had significantly higher oil revenues coming in. They've spent a lot of that money on their military, uh, on, on their defense spending. And what we saw in September last year was a 31-day war, essentially, where during which the Azerbaijanis basically wiped out the entire Armenian army. But they did it for the cost of about $40 million by employing Turkish and Israeli drones. And these drones are not the kind of $15 million per unit predator drones that the US and, and its allies favor, but they, you know, they cost between $1 and $3 million each, these drones. And, you know, the Turkish ones carry ordnance and the Israeli ones not only carry ordnance, but they're, they're called kamikaze drones. 
And so the the Azerbaijanis put these drones up in the air, had them over the battlefield. Um, they then uh, basically jerry-rigged, or, or, or in my writing I refer to it as they, they've launched the world's first MacGyvered SUV, uh, UAVs, um, by taking Soviet Antonov A2 biplanes from World War II, which are basically obsolete, setting them up to be to be unmanned piloted. Um, they send them up above the battlefield. They get picked up by the radar. And as soon as the Armenians turn their air defense missile batteries on, the kamikaze drones pick up the signals, crash into them, and destroy them. And it, it, this this 31-day blitzkrieg of the Armenian army, which led to, I think, the first complete surrender in any war since 1971 between India and Pakistan, uh, anywhere in the world, changes the nature and the face of warfare dramatically. Um, and we're, you know, we're, we're, what we've seen on the battlefield in that part of the world in the last three or four months is nothing compared with the drone technology that's being worked on now that isn't operational yet. And so you, you, outcomes that previously were pretty much baked in the cake suddenly can be up in the air totally, and, and underdogs can win if they have the right equipment, the right training. You know, the Azerbaijani army did joint exercises with the Turks after having bought the drones last July and August and then launched this offensive in September. So they basically spent two months being shown how to use these drones, um, launched an offensive, and 31 days later, Armenia had completely capitulated. What does that do for uh, the China-Taiwan conflict, for example? Um, you know, it's 100 miles across the Taiwan Strait for the Chinese Navy at its nearest point. Um, you can do a lot of damage to a, a stationary fleet if you've got a whole swarm of kamikaze drones. Do you, is the outcome assured now? Well, I would argue that it's not as assured as it was. I mean, what about the Middle East? You know, we've seen these drones being used on the oil fields by the Yemenis. So, you know, warfare is changing, and and I think these are the kinds of things that that people need to think about. Um, and I try and talk about just because they're not really covered everywhere you look. I mean, no one's really taken the time to look at the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict when Netflix and Google are going up every day. People are much more interested in, in that happening. And I get that. But away from the kind of mainstream coverage and the, and the main asset classes, there are, there are all kinds of interesting things happening, which, which at some point are going to matter. And I think the, the key is, is to spend some time at least focusing on what are the things that, that can happen? What are the things that aren't on general radar screens right now, but which, uh, with not too much imagination, could be either significant tailwinds or significant headwinds for risk assets? Well, it's it's fascinating stuff, and it's actually terrifying to to think about a lot of these things. But you know, I know yeah, that's the trouble. R- r- yeah, and that, that's why most people, hey, I'd rather just watch my GameStop stock go to the moon, you know, whatever. But, you know, it's something that Ray Dalio has written about a, a ton, and it doesn't really, out of all, everything that, you know, he gets quoted about, 
um, you know, when he talks about the potential for armed conflict in the future, whether it's, you know, civil war or, you know, hot wars around the world, you know, this is something he's been been writing about and it seems to get relatively ignored compared to his, you know, thoughts on Bitcoin or, you know, what have you. And so it, it probably is something to to think about, you know, God God forbid, you know, the, these types of things, uh, you know, expand. But I think it's very important to consider the, the, the potential. So. Well, I, I think I think the important thing for people to do, Jesse, is is, uh, and I, I gave a presentation back in January of 2015, all about warfare and how and how warfare has changed over the years, and and how the tensions around the world were, were rising then. And the first question I got asked at the end of it was, you know, are you saying there's going to be a war? And I said, no, I'm I'm absolutely not saying there's going to be a war. But what I'm absolutely saying is there's not not going to be a war. You know, you can no longer assume. That warfare is is just a, a non-starter. I think people have to understand that in times of great stress and tension, whether it be economic or social at home, um, every government is is always grateful of a, of a of a friendly outside enemy that they can that they can rally the, rally the people around. And so that becomes the solution to an awful lot of problems. And if you look back at the history of warfare, you'll see more often than not, in fact, warfare. Uh, between nations has generally happened because of problematic financial conditions. Well, it's it's probably an uh, appropriate transition to this question. That you know, it's been a it's been a uh, a wild year with the, with the pandemic, and you've been obviously been you know super busy. Um, is there? Do you have some sort of outlet that you use to get away from these crazy markets and and these types of things? Well, you know, look, I, I, I would say golf, but that's even more frustrating than the markets when, when, yeah. when, when your game's in the kind of shape mine is. Do you, do you know what? The funny thing is, I um, because I was stuck in lockdown this year, uh, I fostered a dog. And uh, within 24 hours of fostering this dog, I told the shelter there was no way they could ever take him back. They'd have to prize him out of my cold, dead hands. Um, and the dog has just been phenomenal. I mean, I... I, I the poor thing, I, I walk him for three hours a day, just you know, throughout the day in various intervals. And, and you're having that time to, to go outside. I've listened to a ton of podcasts. I've listened to a ton of audio books and, and just get some air, stretch your legs, and just have time to think. And, and sometimes I'll just listen to music to switch off. But it's just, I think the, 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 the COVID and the lockdown has made it so easy to sit in front of your computer all day long. And and just get wrapped up in stuff and 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 you know, constantly read and constantly feel like I need to have an opinion on everything that's happening and there's so much going on and 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 for me what I've found is just just you know getting up and putting the lead on the dog and going out for for a walk for 45 minutes or an hour um, and listen to something that either takes me away from what I was thinking about before or, or just you know entertains me is just a, has been a fantastic way to. To clear my head and, and be able to, to to kind of come back and think about things differently, and I, I've, without that, I, I I I think I'd be in some kind of institution you'd be talking to me in right now. To be honest with you, yeah. Well, now you know the uh, ad reps at Chewy are going to be reaching out to advertise <laughs> on the podcast. <laughs> but um, anyhow. This has been fantastic. I, I'm, I'm so glad that you're able to take the time to come, you know, discuss these things with me. I, you know, you're always just a fantastic person to, to, I love picking your brain. Um, so for, for those of, uh, you know, people who want to kind of keep up with your ideas and your work, where, where can they, uh, they do that? 
Well, I've, I've, it's long overdue, but I've finally um, relaunched my website. I've got a proper website now, not the abomination that I had before that when I didn't have any time to do it. So if you go to um, grant-williams.com, you'll find all the podcasts there. You'll find the letters there. Um, and I'd say if anyone's was they had their interest peaked by um, – our conversation about Tony Deedon, you can you can find the conversation I did with him on Real Vision. It's it's up on YouTube, and I would I would urge anybody to to who hasn't watched that to watch it. Um, and you'll also find on the site the, um, the that that letter you can download as a free sample, which is called Two Men in a Boat, and that um, again is just uh, a, another wealth of information shared shared by Tony with me and on a week on a boat last year. And I highly recommend them. I, you know, I, I mentioned that uh, I, I reached out to you actually after right when you published that, just to tell you how much that uh, that piece meant to me. Um, so I highly recommend everybody go check that out. But Grant, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Oh, Jesse, are you kidding me? I, I, I sit and have these conversations with you every week if I could. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed every minute of it. And that does it for another episode of Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. As always, you can find notes and links related to this episode at thefelderreport.com. Thank you for listening. And until next time, buy low, sell high. Man looks in the abyss. There's nothing staring back at him. At that moment, man finds his character. And that is what keeps him out of the abyss.